is one of the most iconic figures in all of movie history. In a cinematic career that has spanned over 40 years, he has become the embodiment of resourcefulness in the face of chaos and adversity, a guardian of civilization and hope to the oppressed. And he's the proud brainchild of an Australian emergency room physician who completed his residency at Sydney's St. Vincent's Hospital. While we're a far cry from the apocalyptic landscape that gave rise to the adventures of Mad Max, the lesson he imparts on us today is a simple one. It's through human solidarity that we overcome the challenges before us. We live in a time when a pandemic threatens to push us further into isolation from each other. But for the heroes on the front lines of healthcare, the battle must be met head-on with resourcefulness and compassion. Welcome to If When, a Jacobs podcast series. I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode I was privileged to speak with Matthew Holmes, Jacobs Global Director for Healthcare, and Mark Newsom, Director for HealthSolve Limited in New Zealand. Matthew and Mark shared their insights on trends and directions in health service delivery with a view towards what we can learn from the COVID-19 experience. Matthew Holmes is a chartered UK and French registered architect who leads Jacobs Global Healthcare Solutions business. After completing the Centre Hospitalier Universitaire de Clermont-Ferrand in France, he relocated to Australia in 2011 where he has been instrumental in leading the Jacobs Healthcare Advisory and Design Services teams across a wide range of project typologies. His more recent projects support the delivery of healthcare services in rural locations across Australia, New Zealand, and Kiribati, through to the planning of major tertiary facilities. His current work and research are focused on the sustainable delivery of healthcare services and acknowledging the levers of policy setting, while challenging the how, what, and where as key components in the delivery of sustainable healthcare systems. Mark Newsom assists health providers in matters of strategy, clinical and service reviews, leadership development, performance improvement and management, health planning and business case development. A registered nurse and a master of public health, Mark's dissertation focused on pandemic planning and over his career, he has held a variety of emergency preparedness leadership positions, dealing with crises ranging from the SARS outbreak in Australasia, the 2009 swine flu outbreak in New Zealand, and the Canterbury and Kaikoura earthquakes. Thank you, gentlemen, both for joining me today to talk about uh, trends and directions in health service delivery uh, as we start to look at getting through the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, specifically taking a look at the uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, marketplace. So, Matthew, to start with you, I just want to ask, you know, in your experience, what are the top two to three takeaways that healthcare facilities learned as a result of going through this whole COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we've, there's been a lot of work actually also really understanding the capacity of the systems to respond and um, we've been utilising, you've been familiar with some of the words like the resilience. So that capacity issue has been a lot of reflection about how we can scale up to meet sort of forecasted demand. So, and that sort of manifested itself in different ways. So sort of whether that's temporary planning of temporary solutions, right through sort of looking at um, sort of the capacity of the infrastructure. And to give an example, came up the other day was wasn't actually in Australia, but it was with our UK colleagues. So some of the health um, infrastructure, its capacity to deliver the volumes of oxygen around the existing campuses. You know, most of these health facilities have been designed 
not to have all patients sort of taking um, O2. The, the, the volumes are so considerable. We saw quite a few health facilities really um, sort of get to the edge of their capacity to do to deliver that. So that that review of the capacity of the system um, has been really sort of um, preeminent or you know, f- first thing. I think the other areas though, they've been looking at and you would have, everyone would have heard is um, sort of the supply chain. Um, and we've had the challenges of the supply chain and I think there'll be a lot of reflection in time about that supply chain. And that's gone as far as sort of, um, you know, individuals and parties helping. We've seen sort of 3D printing of um, components of masks and goggles to sort of try and support the health systems. Um, and possibly the last one, I think, was there's been a lot of reflection about training and workforce um, and certainly in a response to sort of, um, sort of the acuity, how we can um, upskill our existing workers and others outside the system. So, I mean, again, I know possibly from overseas how sort of the paramedics have been trained to utilise or to get um, involved in the clinical setting. So they're probably like the three or three or four to take out that we've been talking about and having conversations with. Okay. And, and, you know, uh, Mark, in a similar vein to that, you know, Matthew touched on capacity and the supply chain uh, challenges and whatnot. You know, let me ask you in, in your role uh, in hospital administration, what factors and circumstances compounded the challenge your team faced in adequately providing care to the patients in your system, and how did you mitigate those? Uh, thanks, Paul. Um, yeah, look, I absolutely agree with Matthew. The, the system capacity uh, was a big issue and a big anxiety for people. And when I talk about system capacity, I'm not just referring to hospitals, it's, it's capacity across the system, the way general practitioners. Um, see people and, and planning for that as well. So it's a system-wide capacity. Um, so that was that was an issue and completely agree with Matthew. And, and the ways that that was kind of dealt with here in New Zealand was what they call CBACs, as community-based assessment centres were set up for people to for uh, COVID testing uh, in the primary care setting. And GPs you know, um, had new ways of seeing people. So the use of you know, technology-based um, consultations uh, like what we're doing now over Zoom was you know, set up quite quickly. Um, and what, whilst people were doing that previously, the, the uptake uh, in a really short period of time was massive. And then, of course, there's the, the hospital-based uh, capacity issues about how, how do you turn facilities on early that were already being constructed or planned and, and how do you repurpose um, existing facilities. But amongst the, amongst the challenges, aside from capacity, I think, such a fast-moving and dynamic situation um, that I think you know, info, information was evolving and changing all the time. New Zealand introduced uh, alert levels um, and then very quickly went into alert level four, which was a complete lockdown, uh, essentially, of everyone. Um, so in that alone moves to the next kind of challenge, which was the fear and, fear and anxiety amongst health providers. You know, people were reading about the transmission of, of this virus to health professionals and you know, leading to, to deaths amongst health professionals. So you know, that was a big deal for a lot of health providers. And, and kind of the mitigation, not that you can completely ever mitigate that, was just providing good, clear, constant uh, information and communication, ensuring that the health professionals delivering care had the right equipment to do the job, um, and, and completely involved in leading the direction and decision making and what we were actually uh, doing. Um, so they, they would be the, the the top challenges, and of course, there's the supply chain issues that Matthew referred to as well, and particularly around personal protective equipment. 
um, and, and whilst there's certainly been issues in, in other countries and said to have been an issue here in New Zealand, and we certainly didn't get it 100% right, but that's just ensuring that people have the right type of PPE, the, you know, the right amount, that the distribution across the health system was was patient that people were getting what they needed at the time. And, and then actually, what kind of PPE did they need for a certain situation, the education around it, and the context that it was used in, because we were very good usually at, at using PPE in a hospital environment, but probably less so in community-based environments. So they'll, they'll probably be the major challenges that I would um, say right now. Okay, and then following up on that, you know, how do you uh, see the current pandemic changing the way that healthcare facilities in Australia and New Zealand meet future pandemic challenges? Like, what do they need to get right now to ensure they're adequately prepared for the future? Yeah, that's a good question, Paul. I think, you know, talking about PPE just now, I think actually having a supply chain that is that people can depend on, that gives reassurance to health professionals, um, supply chain for PPE is, I think, incredibly important. Health professionals want to know that they are going to have the equipment that they that they can put their hands on when they need it. So that, I think that's one thing that needs to be to be landed to give everyone reassurance as soon as possible. And then there's the things around physical space. You know, physical distancing has added a, a complexity to this pandemic that I don't think anyone ever considered. Um, and so that, that's. You know, how do we communicate with people when having to consider physical distancing? What is our, what do our facilities look like in terms of treating people um, effectively whilst maintaining safety uh, amongst everyone? And then there's a lot of procedures uh, and new ways of operating that I previously referred to with you know, potentially using technology-based consultations. But you know, new, new ways of operating, taking into account the physical distancing that we that we need to do. That'd be the main challenges that we kind of need to get some clarity around and put some good solutions in place to to give everyone that reassurance they need that they can do their do their jobs or get treatment in a manner that they can be reassured by. And in Matthew, you know, as you're as you're talking with your various clients and, and partners. What are you hearing from them have been some of the best practices that they've adopted and that would be worth sharing with other professionals and administrators? I think, I think Mark actually mentioned there that, that, that telemedicine. Um, and what's really interesting is almost a paradigm shift that we've seen um, with our health uh, professionals and the sort of the speed of the, the rapidity of, of engaging or embracing it. And that's really going to be a huge change if we can continue that model going forward. If you talk about health systems or work with um, clinical um, providers, there tends to be, um, well, there's been historic sort of reticence almost in sort of sometimes doing quite significant radical changes of, in the models of care. And I think what COVID-19 has demonstrated is actually the capacity of individuals to actually look at things significant or really differently uh, when under sort of this type of scenario. So we, we're seeing and have seen already, um, you know, the volumes, it's almost like those ambulatory, those non-acute settings being um, uh, consultations occurring really off, you know, low-tech, your iPhone, your, your, your smartphone, whether it's utilising FaceTime or, or, you know, WhatsApp or whatever. So it's not necessarily about sort of the high-end telemedicine we might see inside um, health facilities, but it's allowing the clinicians to to operate possibly from the safety of their own home. So that's been a 
and it'd be really interesting, a huge change in how that pans out. I suppose one question I was having with someone the other day was, what does that mean for the health workforce? You know, where do they have to, to, to reside or, or be? Although acknowledging some of the regulatory sort of constraints, we see in other parts of our business, um, you know, some of that drive to push some of that work to other locations that might be more cost effective. And I suppose there is a question there about even in the health service, do we start looking at, um, you know, centralising some of those activities, pushing those to sort of bigger areas? And maybe that will be a really interesting outcome for some of our more rural locations, which always struggle sort of getting access to good clinical um, sort of connectivity. So I think we're going to see a lot of um, reflection on connectivity and telemedicine. And I'd say almost in its low-tech sense, not necessarily its high-tech sense, which then goes sort of that infrastructure. And again, you know, we see some of the um, some of sort of the government's indications about where they see investment. And there's a lot of conversation around technology and data and the like. So it's strengthening those sort of networks of, you know, with broadband, 5G and the like to get to support that um, type of connectivity, um, which I think will be certainly part of one of the key um, components. So on a completely side or separate note, some of the one of the conversations I was having almost about design, obviously I'm, a, I'm an architect by background, so I'm also focused on design and how our health facilities support the sort of, um, you know, the, the infection control environment. So one of the conversations I was having is how do you get in and out of and through a hospital sort of having a no-touch access for everyone, which, you know, is a big step up. And we were sort of talking about the challenges of bathrooms and the lights and the throughput of you know, the population and the public and stuff. So I do see a reflection really, um, you know, whether that's technology as you move through health facilities or check-in, your no-touch access. Um, we were having conversations with a sort of major mobile phone provider, maybe even like six months ago prior, going, you know, how can we check in off your mobile phone so you don't actually need to, you know, utilise the, the, the kiosks and the like. So that integration of technology sort of to reduce, um, you know, physical touching really, um, which also goes back to sort of Mark's comment, trying to maintain that physical separation. And I think that's going to be around for some time yet. So I don't see um, that sort of physical separation changing. So those support measures we can put in place to sort of support that type of movement through a health uh, facility. Notwithstanding, um, some big challenges for the workforce. You know, they obviously need to get close to patients. So there's a still, um, still a lot to do, and it really does rely on what Mark said, the PPE. Yeah, and, you know, we had, uh, we had talked previously, you know, there's that, the whole phenomenon of, you know, what do we do with um, urban environments where people are, you know, tend to congregate. And I think when you look at, you look at some of the various thought leadership out there from like the World Health Organization and other bodies, you know, there's these big trends in people moving you know, they're congregating or have been congregating to urban environments. And it's the whole phenomenon of like mega cities and things like that. And I think you had actually made the comment, if I correctly, if I remember correctly, about there may be a re-exploration of people kind of moving back into more rural areas because, you know, kind of dispersing some of that population. And so, you know, then it seems like it's probably incumbent that there's going to be, we're going to have to have some of those technologies to facilitate a shift in like where our population is going to be going to or possibly going to, but again, cities, you know, I think you made the point cities move very slowly. Yeah. And I think that's a really valid point, Paul, because, you know, cities may move slowly, but sort of people can move faster almost. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, are we seeing even already sort of, um, is there a, a tendency for population to reassess where it lives almost? And if we move to a more rural environment, how's healthcare delivered? 
And I think interestingly, particularly in New Zealand, it does have a very rural population, you know, and Mark can talk about that a lot, but we, we do have health facilities in very rural locations supporting the community. Um, and the challenges are distance and how um, those facilities, you know, particularly in New Zealand context, can be very isolated. We have a project on the West Coast that can be two or three days isolated um, from any other sort of major tertiary centre um, because of weather, sort of access and all of those types of things. So the capacity, almost linking back to what we said earlier, that resilience, the capacity of those isolated facilities to respond, which then picks up all those things, you know, training, and actually, you know, goes also back to telemedicine. So you get some of the more acute telemedicine occurring in some of those rural and remote facilities. But I think, you know, we see that, I, I can see that reflection occurring, um, that drive to actually, maybe there's a population shift now. Maybe I'm being too um, presumptuous to say that will occur, but I, I think it's um, certainly a strong consideration. And obviously we need a little bit of time to see how things settle down um, and whether that occurs. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see because there's there's a lot of verticals where that are dependent now on like large scale, uh, a large scale populace, and it'll be interesting to see. Well, one that leaps to mind, of course, is transportation, public transportation, things like that. But so that's interesting about about New Zealand because you know, Mark, my question for you is going to be knowing that there's a, or at least there has, it's been commented that there's a possibility that the pandemic may kind of rear back up again as we enter into later into the the year, you know, and into winter months here in the, in the, you know, for instance, in the United States. And so maybe some of the changes in terms of like population shift and that sort of thing will take time. And so I was going to ask you uh, along the lines of like, what advice would you have for administrators in the event we have a, a boomerang pandemic in the fall and winter? But to Matthew's point about the, the kind of rural nature of New Zealand, what have what would you say you may have found there uh, in dealing with you know a geographically dispersed healthcare uh, constituency who would need help, and you know what what kind of lessons could might you pass along that other healthcare providers having to look more distancing and those kinds of things could really learn from. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very interesting points. Um, I think one of the unique features of New Zealand, and, and we're in a very fortunate position, is that we are you know, essentially two, two, three islands, and the population isn't vast, although it is dispersed across uh, both urban and, and rural areas. And the, the health system view is very much that. It's a system view as opposed to a focused facility or hospital view. So all of the, the planning that has been undertaken or, and will continue to be undertaken, you know, whilst the, the various facilities need to have their own plans in place and review what they've done, the, very much the overarching plans is a system view. So how does a patient actually enter uh, a patient or potentially someone with um, COVID-19 into the system? How do they get to have their test? How do they get to, to see their GP? And then where do they go from there? What's their follow-up look like? the contact tracing look like if they require admission to hospital and all of that is very much joined up uh, across the various district health boards in, in New Zealand and right across the system and I think that's incredibly important because if we if we're not joined up across the system then we'll have lots of well-intentioned but very uncoordinated activity um, which of course there'll be duplication in that activity but actually more concerningly people will fall through the cracks um, so 
if there's any lessons going forward or anything that we need to to reinforce and, and shore up, it's ensuring that the, it's a system-wide view and we're not uh, having a siloed approach to how we how we deliver care and care for our populations in this time of COVID-19. You know, right now, it's you know, we've been dealing with COVID-19 for a couple of months, uh, you know, and it's been kind of rolling across the globe. And, and I guess depending on where you live, it's, you know, it's kind of spiked. And then uh, you know, we're starting to get back into a potential light at the end of the tunnel kind of situation where we get kind of used to living in this, uh, in this environment. But a question I have for you, Mark, is, is around combating healthcare system fatigue. You, all these stories of the, these heroic, you know, medical providers who are having to put in like just crazy hours and it's the system is, the system itself is being taxed, but, you know, but so are the professionals and the people who are having to care for people. And how are, you know, kind of, how are you dealing with that? And, uh, you know, especially if we, if we are looking at like, we're not, maybe we're experiencing a, a lull, but that the possibility looms that, there could be a rebound or, or a boomerang of some sort. And so, you know, what, what can we be doing from a, a personnel standpoint to help combat healthcare system fatigue? I'd venture to say that the health system lives in a constant state of fatigue for various reasons, but certainly it's more concentrated at this time. And I think we rely in New Zealand across the health system on on fewer people than perhaps other systems and fewer key people. So it's, it's crucial that we do we do care for them um, and we do support them and support each other. I think as we, as we head into a, a time of less volume in terms of COVID-19, it's time to take a breath. Uh, it's time to let some of those people have breaks, but importantly, it's time to review what we've, where we've been and what we've done. And then actually, what can we do better so that if we do if we do see another peak or another surge of of this virus that we are better prepared than we were for the first time round so i think uh, to, to answer your question i'm not sh- i don't know that there's an easy answer but it is ensuring people get adequate time to rest and recuperate while others actually are doing the review of, of where we've been and what we can actually do better and then actually learning those lessons and putting um, solutions in place so that we are a better place for that for this uh, second wave or surge if it comes. And then, as as kind of a adjacent uh, question to that, and Matthew, uh, you know, are there any emerging technologies that you see that will be especially beneficial to the healthcare sector in the next few years that professionals would be able to tap into and, and might help offset some of that, you know, like that fatigue and whatnot. I mean, it, no, it's, I mean, it's a good question, and um, I think Mark touches on the fatigue, and I, there certainly will probably, I think there will be a reassessment of our whole health systems um, in time once we've had a moment to sort of step, you know, step back a little bit, and a little bit like I touched on earlier, those technologies about how we work um, and the likes. We see that integration of um, systems, um, you know, whether that's diagnostics, um, medical notes, and the likes, and. The complexity of that cannot be underestimated. You know, we talk about digital hospitals and, and the likes, but acknowledging that, you know, the, we have so many different systems and myriads of information, different vendors, bringing that together is sort of, it's a Herculean task for any organisation. And some nations seem to be, you know, slightly more or more advanced than others. We you know Singapore's done, you know, some great leaps and bounds. 
certainly in New Zealand, there's certainly an interest or sort of desire to do that. And we're seeing that more and more. But it can't be underestimated the sort of the disassembled or the um, sort of fragment, fragmented nature of the information. And that's one of the challenges I think we'll see. We've got the likes you're beginning to see, you know, globally, you know, whether that's Google or Apple starting to show an interest in this. I don't know how it's going to pan out, but the technology and the integration of the technology inevitably will become, you know, um, key attributes sort of public health. You know, we, we, we're wearing our smartwatches, which are tracking our movements, their sort of you know, heartbeats and the likes. How that all comes together, um, I still think, you know, we've got a long way to go, but it will, you know, almost inevitably, the, the speed of technology change is phenomenal and it will probably, you know, hit us faster than we imagine. But it's the complexity of it, I think, is the challenge um, that we see or I see and certainly talking with my sort of clinical or technology advisors, they certainly don't underestimate it or they're very hopeful. And I think that goes back to, you know, as far as we're talking earlier about that sort of no-touch access. So having, you know, when I arrive at a health facility, you know, my smartphone is detected, it knows I'm there, I'm guided to the right space, blah, blah, blah. So technology is, you know, it is, it's continuously evolving. Um, but we do have a history in health of spending large sums of money on it, and um, it's, you know, it's, it's expensive. And then, Mark, you know, my last question is for you: is is really, you know, you run the front lines, and and your your system is, you know, obviously is, is taking care of patients and dealing with this added stress of a pandemic on top of just the normal day in day out of caring for you know uh, people. Are there, you know, are there any key points that you, you know, anything that you want to share, any any kind of final thoughts that people might not be taking into consideration enough or just any kind of points that you'd like to make that, you know, you'd want people, you know, listening to uh, to consider uh, about this whole situation? Thanks, Paul. I think to successfully continue to do what we do, and particularly in the face of COVID-19, it, it's about leadership um, and, and strong leadership. And we've seen some really good examples in the New Zealand context of some very good, clear leadership setting really good direction. And I think for health systems, that's one thing that when I did some research into pandemic planning a few years ago, one of the things that was absent, absent in that was, was good leadership. And the other thing that it did show was that in the absence of a pandemic, actually people are so busy doing their business as usual delivering healthcare, that their interest in preparing or planning for a pandemic is low. And you can understand that. So we need to grab the bull by the horns, as it were, now when interest is high, people's concern is high, to actually look at our plans again. As, and as I said previously, look at our plans again, see what we did well, see what we need to change, and, and, and put those, those things in place in terms of our response, our procedures, our pandemic stocks, which you know, includes things like PPE, how we train our health professionals in all different contexts, how we respond in an emergency, um, the use of the digital enablers to, to let people carry on and do some of the business as usual at work whilst not responding particularly to, to COVID-19. We need to test some of that stuff, not in anger, so that we have some assurance that actually what we have planned or replanned is actually going to work. But I, I think the major component is about good, strong sector leadership to ensure that those things happen and that as uh, cases decrease and perhaps we move into a lull period, that we don't move our focus back to the, the important business as usual health delivery, 
but we remain focused so that we continue to protect our, our country and our communities. All right. Well, Mark Newsom, Matthew Holmes, thank you both so much for talking with me today. Uh, it's really fascinating and you know, really just appreciate you both for sharing your insights with us about how, uh, how we take this opportunity that the pandemic has provided us and see where we can improve and you know, safeguard our people uh, going forward. And, and thank you for all your efforts to, for doing that. So I uh, appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you, Mark.